1985, Sylvester Stallone reprised his role as PTSD-addled Vietnam veteran John Rambo in the somewhat confusingly named Rambo First Blood Part Two. His mission? Well, I'll just let the trailer guy tell you. Sylvester Stallone is back as Rambo. His mission? To locate American POWs in Vietnam. Over the course of the film, the titular Rambo goes on a psychotic rampage throughout Vietnam, using a wide arsenal to kill scores and scores of Vietnamese communists. Even though it's the 80s and the Vietnam War has been over for a decade, Stallone discovers practically a platoon of good old American boys that were being held in a secret, dirty Vietnamese communist prison camp. Our hero Rambo is then betrayed by an evil government bureaucrat who's terrified of what the American people would do if they knew the truth, that our boys had not been brought home. The plot of the movie after this point is largely incidental. It gives Rambo an excuse to kill lots and lots of dirty communists, both Vietnamese and Soviet, defeat the bad guy, save the poor poor prisoners, and in the end, cast off the glory, saying that if anyone deserves a medal, it's those good American boys who had almost been forgotten, but not by Rambo. Rambo remembers. Then he gives this line, which I'm just going to have to play for you. And what is it you want? I want what they want and every other guy who came over here and spilt his guts and gave everything he had once for our country to love us as much as we love it. That's what I want. With that, Rambo walks off to return three years later in 1988's Rambo 3, which is the one that's dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. But what's the deal here? What are we supposed to take away from this little summary besides the fact that an 80s American action franchise has reactionary politics? Well, it's that Rambo, colon, First Blood, colon, Part 2, is one of the many cultural manifestations of a right-wing conspiracy theory that dates all the way back to the big man Richard Nixon. That is, the missing Vietnam prisoners of war. The most likely way that you've encountered this is through the black POW MIA flag. In the middle is a downward cast silhouette, behind him is a guard tower, and in front of him barbed wire. Below are the words, you are not forgotten. Nine days a year, you can see it hanging from the flagpole of every federal government building in America, including post offices. It is, notably, the only flag that gets this treatment. So today I want to talk not only about the flag, but also where this idea came from and how it grew to such high prominence. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I am Ellis Tucci. And this is episode 125, P-O-W-M-I-A. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. So, before we talk about Nixon, to get to the beginning of the issue, we have to talk briefly about Johnson. 
Lyndon Johnson, of course, massively expanded the Vietnam War during his six years as president, and all throughout this period, with varying amounts of success, he struggled to keep the nature as well as the scope of the Vietnam War hidden from the public. Given that the United States had not declared war, that they were in Vietnam for quite obviously dubious reasons, and that the rapid growth of American commitment to the war had brought no discernible gains, it was in the interest of the Johnson administration to keep the unfolding disaster as quiet as possible. The wives of soldiers captured or missing in Vietnam were instructed that they should not tell anybody about their situation. Eventually, the Vietnamese ended up accumulating a small amount of American prisoners. At no point during the war was this number larger than 700. The government similarly told these wives that they should not speak about the fate of their husbands, ostensibly because they feared it would get them worse treatment, but in reality because Johnson wanted to prevent them from becoming a political issue. Eventually, these wives became tired of waiting around in silence, and in 1966, a small San Diego-based support group for the wives of Vietnam War prisoners formed the League of Families of American Prisoners and Missing in Southeast Asia. It was led by Sybil Stockdale, whose husband, James Stockdale, was present at and led the reprisals after the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the American false flag attack that started the Vietnam War. A side note, he would later be Ross Perot's running mate in the 1992 presidential election. Throughout the rest of Johnson's term, the League continued to organize small chapters across the country, eventually incorporating nationally in 1967. In August 1968, when Johnson announced that he would not seek the Democratic nomination for president, Richard Nixon once again entered the scene. After beating out a competitive Republican field, including the newly minted governor of California, Ronald Reagan, Nixon secured the nomination at the Republican convention in August 1968, cruising to victory that November, handily defeating Democrat Hubert Humphrey and independent mega-racist George Wallace. On the campaign trail, Nixon had promised a, quote, honorable end to the war in Vietnam, and throughout the election, the League of POW-MIA Families pressured Nixon to make the retrieval of these prisoners a top priority. The day after he was inaugurated, January 21, 1969, the League had gotten 2,000 telegrams on the new president's desk. Nixon saw an opportunity. Not only did he agree that these prisoners would be brought home, but his administration went to great lengths to help the League and boost its profile. They were given free office space in Washington's American Legion building, and the White House went as far as to create fake chapters of the organization across the country. You see, Nixon had a problem. He had run on winding down the Vietnam War, but that was essentially the exact opposite of what he intended to do. Together with Henry Kissinger, he cooked up what he called Madman Theory, the goal of which was to scare the Vietnamese into ending the war on terms favorable to the United States by making them think that Nixon was such an unhinged lunatic that he would start a nuclear war. In order to make that threat believable, Nixon needed to massively expand the destruction and carnage of the American occupation in Vietnam. Accordingly, he dramatically increased bombing campaigns across Southeast Asia. U.S. troop presence would peak that year, reaching a total of 549,000 in 1969. 
So how did Nixon deflect from this very obvious escalation? Well, that's where the League came in. You see, previously, when American pilots were shot down over the dense jungle of Vietnam and their names were not listed on the rolls of POWs, it was determined that by far the most likely situation is that that pilot was dead. Accordingly, they were classified as killed in action, body unrecovered. Over the course of the war, approximately 1,300 pilots received this designation. In a classic example of Nixonian sleight of hand, on May 3, 1969, Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird announced a reversal of the Johnson administration's tight-lipped policy on prisoners of war. Instead, Nixon would, quote, go public in his campaign for their return. In doing so, the administration changed the classification of those 1,300 dead pilots from KIA body unrecovered to a new term, prisoner of war missing in action. The name now implied that the most likely scenario was that these soldiers were alive, held in some secret Vietnamese prison. This change brought two great advantages for Nixon. First, it gave him a justification to continue the war indefinitely. He would soon be saying that the release of all the prisoners, only a quarter of which actually existed, was a prerequisite to America leaving Vietnam. Second, and arguably more important, it allowed America to deflect any criticism about the war by framing itself as the victim. Never mind why half a million American soldiers are in Vietnam, they've got our boys, and by gum we're not going to stop until we have them back. Journalist Jonathan Schell at the time wrote that Americans acted, quote, as though the North Vietnamese had kidnapped 400 Americans and the United States had gone to war to retrieve them. Nixon had succeeded in turning his mostly imaginary prisoners into a humanitarian issue, and the ensuing national fervor resulted in a massive movement to secure their release. Billboards across the country urged people to write a letter to Hanoi. Bumper stickers and big pins adorned with frowny faces reminded people that POWs never have a nice day. Ad campaigns asked the Vietnamese to have a heart. In 1970, a conservative student group called Viva began selling thin nickel bracelets pressed with names of the prisoners in question. Soon, they were flying off the shelves at the rate of 10,000 per day. Celebrities, athletes, and models were wearing them. Children wore them up and down each arm. Many swore not to take them off until their prisoner had come home. Americans were spoon-fed an extensive propaganda campaign to teach them about the supposedly terrible inhuman conditions that these prisoners were held in, the monstrous torture and ill-treatment that only godless communists were capable of exacting. This, of course, is a classic case of imperial projection. The Americans claimed that the North Vietnamese did not treat their prisoners in accordance with the Geneva Convention, and while this claim is in cases true, I would feel remiss if I didn't mention that the United States claimed that since it had not officially declared war on Vietnam, it was not bound by the Geneva Convention, a justification it used to kill approximately two million civilians across Southeast Asia. The disparity here is dizzying. The Vietnamese have to treat American prisoners well, and in fact should release them immediately, or they're even more heartless and evil. But also, America can act with complete disregard for human life. 
America, which dropped more bombs on Southeast Asia than were used in all of World War II, is the good guy, and its cause is unquestionably just. If you want to talk about the cruelty of prisoner of war camps, the North Vietnamese had about 590 Americans, largely pilots. In South Vietnam, directly supported by the United States and ruled by an American puppet, over a hundred thousand communists and Buddhist monks were imprisoned in some of the most horrifying conditions imaginable. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to read an excerpt from a 1973 article in Time magazine called Vietnam, The Other Prisoners. It is really not proper to call them men anymore. Shapes is a better word. Grotesque sculptures of scarred flesh and gnarled limbs. At lunch at the hospital, they eat rice, fried pork, and bananas, and as their chopsticks dart from bowl to mouth, they seem almost normal, but they're not. When lunch is over, they do not stand up. Years of being shackled in the tiger cages have forced them into a permanent pretzel-like crouch. They move like crabs, skittering across the floor on buttocks and palms. They are of all ages and backgrounds, one was arrested in 1966 during Buddhist riots. Another was caught in the 1968 Tet Offensive. Now all are united by deformity. I was arrested one day in a park with my wife and children, one man says as he rubs the shackle sores on his legs. The police attached electrodes to my genitals, broke my fingers, and hung me from the ceiling by my feet. They did these things to my wife, too and forced my children to watch, but I never gave in. Due to a steady diet of beatings, as well as sand and pebbles in the rice, dysentery, tuberculosis, and chronic stomach disorders were common. Water was limited to three swallows per day, forcing prisoners to drink urine. Those who pleaded for more food were splashed with lye or poked with long bamboo poles. So far, the government response to these accounts has been one of complete denial. Government sources say the prisoners are imposters. Some in the government seem genuinely to doubt that the men really exist. How can these men be alive? asked one knowledgeable and honest government security officer. No one ever comes back from the Khansan tiger cages alive. This is to say, of course, that the entire notion that America is somehow a victim here is a charade. What a surprise, the American government being disingenuous about something. Anyway, eventually Nixon realized that his madman policy was stupid and it didn't work, and settled on what he called Vietnamization, or slowly replacing American soldiers and personnel with newly trained and equipped South Vietnamese ones. On January 27, 1973, Nixon signed the Paris Peace Accords, the very same ones he had sabotaged in his campaign against Johnson, and effectively ended the Vietnam War. It was time to bring our boys home. Operation Homecoming, or the return of American prisoners of war, began on February 12th, when the first batch were released and returned to America. Nixon told Melvin Laird that it would be, quote, an invaluable opportunity to revise the history of this war. By April, all of the 591 prisoners had returned home, each greeted with great fanfare and the subject of intense media spectacle. 
Each of the prisoners was assigned a liaison officer who acted as their screen to the outside world. Unsurprisingly, all of the statements issued by former prisoners through these officers read suspiciously similar. Nixon very seriously wanted to use this as a propaganda victory, but there was a problem. Only 591 prisoners had come home. All of them, but the end number that Nixon had settled on was 1,600. What happened to the other 1,009? It sounds to me like the government is abandoning our boys. And so you can kind of see where it comes from, right? I mean, Nixon created this problem for himself by leading these families to believe that there was a possibility that their husband or father was still alive. It's cruel to give someone false hope like that. And so this is predictably where Nixon loses control of the situation. The families of those declared MIA accused Nixon of abandoning them. The president, now in a tough spot, demanded that the return of, quote, all those declared missing in action become a prerequisite for normalization of relations with Vietnam, a freeze that would last until 1995. This, of course, did nothing to alleviate the issue, and so in May 1973, Wisconsin Congressman Clement Zablocki held a series of hearings in which he concluded correctly that all the pilots who had been classified as MIA were actually dead. To some, this conclusion only meant that the government was in on it. As Nixon gave way to Ford and Carter, it remained an issue, stoked by many on the right, like Ronald Reagan, who during his tenure as governor suggested that we should once more begin bombing Vietnam if all the MIA soldiers were not produced and returned. Because of political leveraging like this, it became a persistent issue for decades that was impossible to put down. In December 1976, the Select Committee on Missing Persons in Southeast Asia published its report, the result of 15 months of research in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. It concluded that, quote, no Americans are still being held alive as prisoners in Indochina. This, too, did not prove convincing. The conspiracy grew throughout the 70s, and then when Reagan won the election of 1980, he gave it his full-throated support, hanging a POW MIA flag in the rotunda of the Capitol building. In a 1983 press conference, when asked if he thought there were still prisoners in Vietnam, Reagan answered, I don't think we can afford to believe there aren't. The fervor with which this conspiracy theory was believed under the Reagan years is best summarized in a story about former Green Beret Bo Greitz. On November 22, 1982, Greitz assembled three Americans and 15 Laotians in a small base in Thailand. They funded their little army with $50,000 from Clint Eastwood and $15,000 from William Shatner, who in turn received the rights to his story. Their mission? To spend two weeks sneaking through Laos to recover the mythical American POWs. They didn't make it three days before being routed by the Laotian military and, quite ironically, having to pay them $17,000 to ransom a man who had been taken prisoner. In March 1983, Greitz was brought before a Senate subcommittee to testify as to his actions. After being repeatedly asked for proof of his claims and being unable to produce anything, 
Wrights finally answered, I have the same evidence that might be presented to a convention of clergymen that God exists. And this is the final form that a conspiracy can take. The point where all evidence to the contrary is immaterial and the belief is religious. And so it should probably not be surprising to note that this is a belief that continued to live on in the face of all evidence. In 1991, a poll concluded that 70% of Americans believed in the missing POWs. That same year, the Senate convened another committee to once again attempt to dispel the claims. This one headed by John Kerry, a Vietnam veteran, and John McCain, a former POW. They concluded that, you guessed it, there were no prisoners left in Vietnam. A lot of good that did them. The myth of the missing POWs persists to this day, and is indeed to a degree encouraged by the government. Not only the aforementioned flying the flag nine days a year, but the military's own defense POW MIA accounting agency still lists 1,584 soldiers missing in action from the Vietnam War. In the very same chart, they also list 72,352 MIA from World War II, which is kind of giving up the game a little bit, isn't it? Like, those World War II guys are totally dead. It's not like there's some centenarian soldier living in a cave in France somewhere who thinks that Jerry's still out there. But on that note, this is essentially where the story ends. The myth of the missing prisoners has persisted into the current day. I mean, hell, just go read the comments section on the trailer for Rambo 2. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode and maybe learned a thing or two. If you did, consider subscribing or sharing the show with a friend. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.